0: If you've not been with us before at Christmas Eve at Applewood Community Church, we have a tradition of reading a story. So tonight, it's a pleasure for me to present to you a story called The Christmas Cross. I lowered my windshield visor both to block the afternoon sun and retrieve the photo with one hand holding the picture and the other on the steering wheel. I inched my rental car down Main Street. Clearwater, Texas was ready for Christmas. The sky was bright winter blue. A breeze just crisp enough for a jacket swayed the large plastic bells hanging beneath the lamplights. Aluminum garlands connected the power poles, and Frosty the Snowman chased his hat on the dairy cream window. Even the pickup truck in front of me had a wreath hanging on its tailgate. This central Texas town was ready for Christmas but I wasn't. I wanted to be back in Chicago. I wanted to be home, but things weren't so good at home. Meg and I had fought. Weeks of suppressed tension had exploded the day before. Same song, second verse. You promised to spend more time at home, she said. You promised not to nag, I replied. She says, I work too much. I say, we've got bills to pay. She feels neglected. I feel frustrated. Finally, she told me we needed some, what was the word? Oh, yeah, we needed some space, some time apart. And I agreed. I had an assignment in Dallas anyway, so why not go to Texas a few days early? So it was the fight with Meg that got me to Texas, but it was the photo that led me to Clearwater. My dad had received it in the mail. No return address. No letter, just this photo, a black and white image of a large stone building. I could barely make out the words on the sign in front, Clearwater Lutheran Church. Dad had no clue what the photo meant or who had sent it. We we were familiar with the town, of course. Clearwater was where I was born and adopted, but we never lived there. My only previous visit had been when I was fresh out of college and curious. I had spent a day walking around asking questions, that was 20 years ago. I hadn't been back since and I wouldn't have returned now except Meg needed space and I could use an answer about the photo. I pulled over to the side of the road and stopped in front of a two-story brick courthouse. Cardboard cutouts of Santa and his reindeer teetered on the lawn. I lowered my window and showed the photo to a couple of aging cowboys leaning against the side of a truck. Ever seen this place, I asked. They smiled at each other and One cowboy spoke, If you've got a strong arm, you could throw a rock from here and hit it. He instructed me to turn right past the courthouse and turn right again, and when I did, I saw it, the church, in the photo. My preconceived notion of a small-town church didn't match what I was seeing. I had always imagined a small, white-framed building with a simple belfry over the entrance, something like an overgrown dollhouse. Not so this structure... The white stone walls and tall steel roofs spoke of permanence. Long wings extended to the right and left. I had expressed similar surprise when Dad first showed me the photo, but he had reminded me about the large number of German immigrants in the area, immigrants who took both their faith and their crafts seriously. I parked in one of the diagonal spots near the church, grabbed my jacket, my cap, and gloves, and got out of the car. Tall elms canopied the wide sidewalk to the church, To my right was a brick sign bearing the name of the church in bronze letters. And on the left side of the church, a nativity scene stood on the lawn. Although I didn't pause to examine it, I was impressed by its quality. Like the church, it seemed sturdy and detailed. I made a mental note to examine it later. A sudden gust of wind at my back forced me to use two hands to pull open the thick wooden doors. Organ music welcomed me as I entered. With cap and gloves in hand, I stopped in the foyer. It was empty, from the look of things. It wouldn't be empty for long, though. The church had the appearance of a service about to happen. Large red and white poinsettias sat on the floor, flanking the foyer doors. And a guest book was open and ready to receive the names of visitors and resting on a podium. Garlands of pine looped across a large window that separated the foyer from the sanctuary. I opened the doors and I took a step inside. And as I did, the volume of the organ music rose a notch. A long carpeted aisle was bisecting the auditorium and a vaulted ceiling rose above it. Evening sunlight, tinted red by stained glass, cast long rectangles across the empty pews. An advent wreath hung on the pulpit and unlit candles sat on the window sills. The only movements were those of a silver-haired woman rehearsing on the organ and an older fellow placing programs in hymnal racks. "'Neither noticed my entrance. "'I spoke in the direction of the man. "'Is there a service tonight?' "'No response. "'Excuse me,' I said a little louder. "'Is there a service tonight?' "'He looked up at me through wire-rimmed glasses, "'kind of cocked his head and cupped a hand behind his ear. "'I said, "'Is there a Christmas service tonight?' "'I felt awkward raising my voice in the sanctuary.' No, we don't need a linen service. Thank you. We wash our own towels. I chuckled to myself. And when I did, I noticed how, how good it felt and how long it had been. No, I repeated, walking in his direction. I was asking about the Christmas Eve service. Hold on. He turned toward the organist. Sarah, can you hold up for a moment? We've got a salesman calling on us. Sarah obliged, and the man looked at me again. They're now... "'What did you say?' "'I repeated the question a fourth time. "'You planning to come?' he asked. "'I'm thinking about it. "'Good thing God was more convicted than you. "'What? "'God didn't just give it thought, you know. "'He did it. "'He came. "'Hmm, spunky, this guy. "'Short and kind of square-bodied, "'not fat, but barrel-chested, "'maintenance was stenciled over the pocket "'of his gray shirt.'" He stepped out from the pews, walked up the aisle, and stood in front of me. Been a while since you've been in church? His accent didn't sound pure Texan. Midwestern, maybe. I suppose I wasn't cloaking my discomfort too well. It had been a while since I'd been in church, and I did feel awkward being there, so I sidestepped the comment. I came because of this, and I produced the photo. He looked down through his bifocals, and he smiled. My, how the trees have grown. Looking up at me, he asked, where are you from? Chicago, I'm a journalist. I don't always say that, but the old fellow seemed to be grading me, and I felt I could use a few points. If I earned any, he didn't say. You ought to be home for Christmas, son. Well, I'd like to be, but I have an assignment, and and your work has you out of town on Christmas Eve? Who are you to grill me? I started to ask, but didn't. Instead, I picked up a worship program and looked at it. Yeah, being home would be nice, but since I'm here, I thought I'd. Six o'clock. What? The service. It starts at six. He extended a hand in my direction. Joe's my name. Forgive me for being nosy. It's just that a man away from his wife. How did you. Your finger. I can see where your ring was. Must have been recent. I looked at my hand and thumbed the line. Angry at Meg, I stuck my wedding band in my pocket on the plane. Yeah, recent, I shrugged. Listen, I'll be back at 6. I'd like to meet the pastor. I've got some things to do now, though And I said that. I put the program back in the hymnal rack. What a lie, I mumbled to myself as I turned. I had absolutely nothing to do and nowhere to go. Joe watched me as I walked down the aisle. At least I think he did. Only when I reached the foyer did I hear him whistling and working again. And as I gave the auditorium one final look, Sarah resumed her rehearsal. I turned to go outside. The wooden doors were still very stubborn. I paused on the steps, put on my cap, and I looked around. Several people stepped into the corner drugstore. Last-minute shoppers, I thought. A fellow with a Western hat gave me a wave. as He walked past. Not far behind me, a woman clutching a shopping bag of gifts in one hand and a youngster's hand in the other, scurried into the smart shop across the street In the adjacent lot, cars encircled Happy's Cafe. Through snow-painted windows, I could see families at the tables. I sighed at the sight of them, struck by the irony of my plot. All alone, 40 years ago, again, all alone, today. I took a deep breath, and I started down the steps, again, noticing the manger scene to my right. Curious, I headed toward it. The yellow grass was cracking beneath my feet as I walked, Lowering my head, I entered the stable, and I studied the figures, obviously hand-carved, hand-painted. They were the largest ones I'd seen. The shepherds, though kneeling, were over two feet tall. I was struck by the extraordinary detail of the carving. Joseph's beard wasn't just painted on. It was carved into the wood. His hand resting on the manger was complete with knuckles and fingernails. Mary knelt on the other side, her hand brushing hair back from her forehead as she looked at her son. One shepherd had his hand on the shoulder of another. Their faces had a a leather hue and a convincing look of of awe. Even the wise men were unique. One gesturing at the infant, another holding the bridle of a camel, and the third reverently placing a gift before the crib. Two cows dozed on folded legs. A sheep and three lambs occupied the space on the other side. I bent down and ran my hand over the white varnished back of the smallest lamb. You won't find a set like this anywhere. Startled, I stood and bumped my head on the roof of the stable. I turned. It was Joe. He would donned a baseball cap and a jacket. Each figure, hand-carved, he continued, right down to the last eyelash and hoof. Mr. Ottelman donated the manger scene to the church. It's been the pride of the city ever since. Mr. Audubon, I asked? Ottelman, a woodworker from Germany. This was his penance. Penance? Self-imposed, he was drunk the night his wife went into labor. So drunk, he wrecked the car while driving her to the hospital. The baby survived, but the mother didn't make it. I squatted down and put my hand on Mary's face. I could feel the individual hairs of her eyebrows, and, and then I ran my finger across the smile on her lips. He spent the better part of a decade doing the work. He made a living building furniture and spent his time raising Carmen and carving these figures. Carmen was his daughter? Yes, the girl who survived. Let me show you something. Joe removed his hat, either out of reverence for the creche or regard for the low roof, and he he knelt before the crib. I joined him. Pull the blanket off the infant Jesus and look at his chest. I did as he asked. Evening shadows made it a little difficult to see, but I could make out the figure of a small cross furrowed into the wood. I ran my finger over the groove, maybe a couple of inches long and half that wide, deep and wide enough for the tip of my finger. For nearly 10 years, a wooden scarlet cross sat in that space. He could see the question on my face and explained. Audelman wasn't a believer when he began, but something about carving the face of the Messiah. Then his voice drifted off for a minute as he touched the tiny chin. Somewhere in the process, he became interested. He went to church, this very church, and asked the pastor all about Jesus. Reverend Jackson told him not just about the birth, but about the death of Christ, and invited him to Sunday worship. He went. He took little Carmen with him. She was only a toddler. The two sat on the front pew and heard their first sermon. Born Crucified was the name of the lesson. The message changed his life. He told everyone about it. Joe smiled and stepped out from under the roof. Then stood in the grass. His breath was puffing clouds in the cold. He used to retell the message to Carmen every night. He'd sit her on her bed and pretend he was the pastor. And at this point, Joe lowered his voice and took on a pulpit rhythm about the baby Jesus born to be crucified. His blue eyes blazed and his fist punched the air as if, as if he were the pastor making that point. So, you knew him? I did. And Carmen? Yes, he sighed. Very well. Still on my knees, I turned back to the baby and touched the indentation left by the cross. He chuckled and said Ottelman told some of the members about his idea for the carving, and they thought it was crazy. Baby Jesus doesn't wear a cross, they said, but he insisted. And one Christmas, when he brought the figures out and set them on the lawn, there was a wooden scarlet cross in the baby's chest. Now, some people made a stink about it, but the reverend, he didn't mind. And the cross, was it lost? Joe put his hands in his pockets and stared off into space. Then he looked back at me. No, it's not lost. Come with me. He turned and he walked toward the church doors and I followed him into the building. Over here, he called. As I stood in the entrance, letting my eyes adjust to the darkening room, I took off my cap and Joe led me through a door off to the side of the foyer and down a long hall. We passed a row of portraits. Apparently they were a gallery of the pastors and I followed him around a corner until we stood in front of a door marked library. There must have been 30 keys hanging from his his belt. One of those keys unlocked the door. And after he turned on the lights, we crossed the room to a corner where a stand held a thick scrapbook. And in a couple of turns of the pages, he found what he was looking for. This article appeared in our paper on Christmas Day in 1958. The yellow newsprint told the story, Stolen Baby Jesus, Home for Christmas. He was silent as I read the first paragraph. Mr. Ottleman must have been pretty angry. No, he wasn't upset, but his baby was taken. Well, finish the article and I'll get us some coffee. So as he left the room, I continued reading. The baby Jesus, part of a set that was hand-carved by a local woodworker, was taken from the Clearwater Lutheran Church sometime yesterday. The minister had posted a sign pleading for the babe's return At last night's Christmas Eve service, Reverend Jackson reported, we had special prayers for the baby. With the homecoming of baby Jesus, the prayers were answered. I was staring at the photograph attached to the article when Joe returned with two cups of coffee. Look closely, he said. Do you see anything missing? The cross? Joe nodded. Why don't you sit down? So we sat down alongside a mahogany table and took a sip of coffee and Joe began he said, 1958, Carmen was 18. She was lively. She was lovely. And Ottoman did his best to raise her, but she had her own ways. Would have been good had he remarried, but, but he never did. Told people, a man only has room in his heart for one woman, and Carmen was his. His daughter was everything to him took her fishing on Saturdays and picked her up after school. Every Sunday, the two sat on the front pew of the church and sang. My, how they sang. And every night, he would pray. He'd thank God for his good grace and then beg God, take care of my Carmen, Lord. Take care of my Carmen. Joe looked away as if he were remembering her. For the first time, I heard conversation in the hall. Parishioners were gathering for the service Just as I found myself hoping that Joe wouldn't stop his story, he continued, Carmen's mother was a a beauty from Mexico, and Carmen had every ounce of her beauty. Dark skin and black hair and eyes that could just melt your soul. She couldn't walk down Main Street without being whistled at. And this bothered Bottleman. He was from the old school, you know, and as she got older, he got stricter. It was for her own good, but she couldn't see it that way. And he went too far. He went too far told her to stay away from boys and to stay away from any place where boys were. And she did, mostly. In the summer of 58, Carmen discovered that she was pregnant. She kept it from her father as long as she could. But by December, it was obvious. And when he found out, he did something very bad. For the rest of his life, he regretted that December night. Joe's tone shifted from one of telling to one of questioning. Why do people do the things they swear they'll never do? I wasn't sure if he expected me to answer or not, but before I could, he continued. Well, Carmen's dad got mad, and he got drunk. He wasn't a bad man. He just did a bad thing. He forgot his faith. And you're not going to believe this. Just before Christmas, he and Carmen had a wreck. Twice in one lifetime, the man wrecked a car carrying the woman that he loved. Joe stopped again, I suppose, to let me mull over what he'd said. I did find it hard to believe. How could a man repeat such a tragic event? Then it occurred to me that I was doing the same thing with my wife, swearing to do better, only to fail again and again, Maybe it wasn't so impossible after all. So go on, Irish, what happened to them? Well, Adelman came out of it okay, but Carmen was hurt, badly hurt. They took her to the hospital where her daddy sat by her bed every single minute. Oh, Jesus, he would pray, take care of my Carmen, don't let her die. The doctors told him they would have to take the baby as soon as Carmen was stable. Well, the night passed and Carmen slept. Audelman sat by her side every moment. She slept right up until Christmas Eve morning, and then she woke up. Her first words were a question. Daddy, has my baby come? He bounded out of his chair, and he took her hand. No, Carmen, but the baby is fine. The doctors are sure the baby is fine. Where am I? He knelt at her bedside. You're in the hospital. It's Christmas Eve. He put her hand on his cheek, and he told her what had happened. He told her about his drinking and the accident, And he began to sob. I'm so sorry, Carmen. I am so sorry. And then Carmen did an amazing thing. She stroked her father's head and said, It's okay, Papa. It's okay. I love you. Leaned forward and he put his face next to hers and wept. And she cried too. She put her arm around her daddy's neck, cried and cried. Neither said anything for the longest time. They just They just held each other, each tear washing away the hurt. Finally, Carmen spoke. Papa, will the baby come before Christmas? I don't know, my dear. Oh, I'd like that, she smiled, her brown eyes twinkling. I'd like very much to have a baby to hold this Christmas Eve. And those were her final words. She closed her eyes to rest, but she never woke up. Joe's eyes misted over as he looked at the floor, and I, I started to say he didn't have to tell me the rest of the story, but when he lifted his head, he was smiling. It was around lunchtime when Ottoman had the idea. You want to sleep with your baby, Carmen? He whispered in her ear. I'll get you your baby. For the first time in weeks, he left the hospital. Out the door and across the street he marched. He walked straight past the courthouse and slowed his pace only when he neared the church. And for a long time he stared at the crash from across the street, the very crash that you saw this afternoon. He was planning something. He took a deep breath and he marched over to the crash. He began adjusting the manger scene like he was inspecting the figures, looking for cracks or marks. And anyone passing by would have thought nothing of Mr. Ottelman examining his own work and no one passing by would have seen that when he left, there was no baby Jesus in the manger. Only an hour later, when the reverend was showing the display to his grandchildren, did anyone notice. And by then, the baby with the scarlet cross was wrapped in a blanket and nestled under the covers next to Carmen. Her final wish was granted. She held a baby on Christmas Eve. For the longest time... Neither Joan nor I spoke. He sat leaning forward, hands folded between his knees. He wasn't here. Neither was I, really. We were both in the world of Ottelman and Carmen and the sculptured baby in the manger. Though I'd never seen their faces, I could see them in my mind. I could see Ottelman pulling the hospital sheets back and placing the infant Jesus next to his daughter. And I could see him sitting a chair next to the bed, taking Carmen's hand in and his and, and waiting. I broke the silence with one word, Carmen. She died two days later. The baby? He came early, but he came. And Mr. Ottelman? Well, he stayed on in Clearwater. He still lives here, as a matter of fact, but he never went back to his house. He couldn't face the emptiness. So what happened to him? At this point, Joe cleared his throat. He said, well... He said, the church took him in, gave him a job and a little room at the back of the sanctuary. Until that moment, until he spoke those words, the possibility had not entered my mind. I leaned forward and looked directly into his face. Who are you? You have her eyes. You know that? He whispered. You mean Carmen was... Yes, your mother. And I'm, well, I'm your, my grandfather. His chin began to tremble as he told me, I've made some big mistakes, son. And I pray I'm not making another one right now. I just wanted you to know what happened. And I wanted to see you while I still could. And as I struggled to understand what he was saying, he reached into his shirt pocket And he removed an object and he placed it in my palm and folded my hand around it. I've been keeping this for you. She would want you to have it. And I opened my hand to see a cross, a small wooden scarlet cross. Later that evening, I called Meg from my room. I told her about Carmen, Ottelman, and the family. I had discovered a family. Were you angry at Joe, she asked. It's funny, I said, of all the emotions that flooded me in that church library, anger wasn't one of them. Shock? Yes. Disbelief? Oh, of course. But but anger? No, no anger. Joe's assessment of himself sounds fair. He is a good man who did a bad thing. And there was a long pause. Meg and I both knew what needed to be discussed next. She found a way to broach it. So what about me? She asked. Are you still angry at me? And with no hesitation, I responded, No. No, there's been way too much anger between us. She agreed. If Carmen forgave Joe, don't you suppose we could do the same for each other? I'll be home tomorrow, I told her. I've got a better idea, she replied. So Meg flew to Texas to be with us. She made it to Clearwater in time to have dinner with two men who by virtue of mistakes and mercy and Christmas miracles had found their way home for the holidays.